You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 3rd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippip. Coming up on today's program. The impact of four rockets with high explosive warheads has resulted in the death of 63 Russian servicemen. Families and friends of these servicemen will be fully assisted and supported. After a rare admission by Russia's defense ministry, its military leadership faces a wave of criticism after a Ukrainian strike kills dozens Russian service members. We ask what the attack reveals about the future direction of the war. As protests continue, a group of prominent, exiled Iranian pro-opposition figures issue a coordinated message predicting 2023 will be a year of victory. We find out more. The EU is to discuss a coordinated response to China's coronavirus situation. We check in with Milan, where they have already started testing passengers arriving from Beijing and Shanghai. And we take a look at Monocle's soft power survey and the use of animals as diplomats. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. Russian commanders have been facing criticism after a devastating Ukrainian attack on a military base. Officially, Moscow says more than 60 soldiers were killed, but the number cannot be verified, with Ukraine saying the number of fatalities could be as high as 400. Moscow's rare acknowledgement of the attack has led to questions about why such a large group of service members were stationed in one location. Joining me on the line is Stephen Diel, right? a broadcaster and Russia analyst. Welcome to the program. Stephen, how much do we know for sure about this attack? We know for sure that um, this building, which was a school in the town of Makievka, um, has been completely destroyed. Um, it's quite a large building and it's been razed to the ground by this attack. So that's one definite point. Um, of course, the the figure, we, the figure we don't know is exactly how many Russian servicemen died. Now, if Moscow is admitting to 63, you can be sure of one thing, and that is that it's a lot higher than that. Um, they're feeling they have to put out some sort of message because um, even though the Kremlin is very good at keeping a lid on information, it's very strong censorship of, of anything they don't like. Nevertheless, of course, there are going to be families um, back in the Saratov region of Russia where apparently these soldiers came from uh, who will know very soon that they're sons aren't coming home, that they're dead. Um, so they've had to admit that this was a larger attack than, than many. Um, it's the biggest number that Russia has admitted to in one go. So it's bound to be more than 63. Whether it's as high as 400 dead as the Ukrainians are claiming, um, we don't know. But we know for sure, coming back to your original point, that the building was wiped out and therefore anyone in that building wouldn't have stood a chance. A very, a very damaging attack for, for Russia. What do you think is happening now behind the scenes in the Kremlin? How much criticism are military commanders getting at the moment? Well, a number of politicians um, who are supportive of the war have been saying, well, this is you know, this is just bad organisation by the military to have so many raw conscripts. This is the other point. It seems that all of these 
those who were in that building, all those soldiers, were those who were called up following the mobilization in September. Now, we know that a lot of those who were called up were sent to the front with virtually no training, bad equipment, in, hardly a uniform between them. Um, uh, and they've been put in very much a frontline area, something that could, the Ukrainians could really easily reach with um, with the American HIMARS missiles. So there will be questions as to why so many soldiers were in one place. Furthermore, apparently ammunition was being stored right alongside the building, as well as other military equipment. Of course, the ammunition goes up. That's one reason why the building is completely flattened. Um, the military equipment is probably um, destroyed or no longer usable anyway. Um, so it, it's... It is a real uh, military blunder, but the other point is it's not the first one. Um, the reason that the um, higher command of the military are getting criticism now from Russian politicians, um, we haven't heard from President Putin yet, but obviously he won't be pleased about this. Um, but the reason they're getting criticism is that it's not the first time. It's that there are, have been so many mistakes. And particularly when you throw untrained soldiers um, towards the front line, you are going to get problems like this. Absolutely. Stephen, you talk about a military blunder. Do you think Russia at the same time has been learning some lessons over the last 10 months or so? Oh, undoubtedly, they've learned some lessons. They learned some very sharp lessons very early on, of course, when um, they were driven out of, uh, of the, the environs of Kiev, where they'd reached um, and, and forced back. And so that the, the war on the ground has very much been now in eastern Ukraine and, and um, in, in parts that Russia claimed when they invaded in 2014. Um, so they have learned lessons, but there is one crucial lesson that they, they, can't really, they can't really learn because they have been putting this forward and we saw it again in President Putin's very aggressive New Year message uh, on the, the evening of, of New Year's Eve to the Russian people saying that, that, say, that this is we're fighting for our motherland. They're not. And the soldiers who go there know they're not. Um, Putin has tried to make this whole uh, special military operation, as he calls it, war, as we all know it is, rather like a kind of almost continuation of the Second World War, where the Russians are the good guys and the Ukrainians are the bad guys. Um, it doesn't work. It's upside down because the Ukrainians are the ones who are fighting for their motherland. It's on their territory. Russian troops who are badly prepared being sent into Ukraine in the initial stages, many of them thought they were on exercise and suddenly they're being fired at. So the, the, um, the, the preparation, the, 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 the mental, the, the morale of the troops, of the Russian troops, is poor and is getting worse and will get even worse with attacks like this because they're not fighting for their motherland. The Ukrainians are. And the Ukrainians, the more that the Russians attack them and the more that the Russians then send these missiles and drones to attack the civilian population too, the more the resolve of the Ukrainians is we're going to see this through, we are going to win. What do you expect from the future then? How much further can that go? And what does it actually mean for Putin and Russia's attack on Ukraine? Well, if I can take the Ukrainian side first, the crucial thing to keep the Ukrainian attacks going is the, the weaponry and the support from the West. Um, and they, they make no bones about that. Um, uh, President Zelensky has, has called again he's for, for this month saying, I, please, I need from the European Union three billion euros worth of, of, of equipment and help. Um, so th the Ukrainians know that. Um, the Americans are now sending, uh, even in small numbers, but the, the uh, Patriot air defense system and air defense is crucial because of the missile attacks. So the Ukrainians, are as long as that's coming, they can keep going for a long time. What this, going back to the incident in Mak Makievka, what this shows is 
that they are, the Russians are having to admit losses because people know that their sons are dying. Now, that could be a crucial factor in all this, because the more people who, who lose their sons, their fathers, their brothers, uh, the more discontent could spread amongst the population. And this is the thing that frightens Putin most of all, much more than, than NATO or Ukraine or anything else. It's this idea of stirrings from below, the people uh, getting so angry and so fed up that, that, that they rise up. Uh, and mothers here, uh, and I've said this point before, that mothers can play a huge role. If you've lost your son, your only son, you're a, you're a single parent or your husband's dead already, um, and you've lost your son, what else have you got to lose? Um, and mothers we've seen across Russia have been getting together and, and uh, in groups. They're trying to put them down. The authorities are trying to put them down. They're trying to... Um, uh, Putin had a had a, a token meeting with mothers um, towards the end of 2022, um, where none of those who were outspoken were invited. It was it was it was a farce, and everyone knew it was a farce. But the more that Russian people realise that this is a, a, a nonsensical war from their point of view, the more of their people, their soldiers, are being killed, um, then the more discontent can grow, and that could yet have an effect in Russia, where there could be serious unrest. And if there's serious unrest, that really worries Putin. That could drive him to somehow end this this uh, this terrible war. Thank you for your insights, Steve. And that was Steve and DL. It's 12.09 here in London. Here is Monocle's Sophie Monan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. There's been an angry reaction by Palestinians after Israel's far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, entered the compound that houses the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem. The visit threatens a backlash from Palestinians who have labelled the act an unprecedented provocation. Beijing has condemned fresh COVID test requirements by around a dozen countries on passengers travelling abroad from its territory, warning it could take countermeasures in response. The United States, Canada, France and Japan are among a number of countries that now require travellers from China to show a negative COVID test before arrival. Thousands of mourners queued through the night to pay respects to Brazil legend Pelé, who is lying in state at the ground of his former club Santos. Pele's coffin was placed in the centre of the pitch at the Urbano Caldera Stadium in Sao Paulo, with fans lining the streets to get inside the ground. And an isolated national park off the coast of Key West has been temporarily closed after the arrival of around 300 migrants, largely from Cuba, landed on the cluster of remote islands over the weekend. The Florida Keys has recently seen an increase in people arriving by boat from Cuba and landing on the islands of Dry Tortugas National Park. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Sophie. A number of prominent exiled Iranian pro-opposition figures have issued a joint New Year's message predicting 2023 will be a year of victory for the pro-democracy movement. People sending the message include the former Crown Prince of Iran and leaders from the fields of culture, human rights and sports. To find out more, I am joined by Ramita Navai, who is a journalist, author and documentary maker. Welcome to the programme. Ramita, could you first tell us more about this message? Yeah, well, as you said, many famous Iranian, mostly exiles, um, have 
predicted that 2023 is going to be the year that the regime crumbles. And they've signed this message and it first appeared on social media with very famous Iranian dissidents uh, tweeting this message and putting it up on Instagram. Tell us more about who exactly had signed the message. So you've got actors like Golshifter Farahani um, and you've got dissidents, um, Iranian female dissidents um, and politicians. I think the important thing to note here is that the message is aimed to embolden the protesters and also to keep the protests in the public domain, to keep the protests in the world's attention. And I think the question is, will the regime crumble in 2023? What are the chances of this? You know, what you're seeing here via this message is that Iranian exiles are very hopeful and think this will happen. Whether that's a reality is another question. How rare is something like this happening, this message, for example? Is it a sign that exiled Iranians are indeed coming together in a way that we haven't seen before? Yes, so this there is a unity that doesn't usually exist um, among Iranian dissidents and among Iranian groups outside the country. And I think we've seen that these protests have been a really unifying force. However, you know, even though there's this joint message, this is a really small percentage of the Iranian exiles and dissidents around the world. You know, this is kind of the privileged few, as you said, they're artists, they're figures from uh, Iranian cultural society, cultured society. Um, so this isn't necessarily representative. Um, I think this doesn't necessarily show that there's a united opposition. There isn't a united opposition. And in a way that has been one of the reasons that these protests have been so successful because there hasn't been a figurehead you know there, there there hasn't this movement has had no leader so in that case for that case it's been really difficult for the regime to decapitate um decapitate the resistance here because there is no leader to kill what do you think how strong could the iranian diaspora be as a movement and as a supporting force for those protests inside iran I think the Iranian diaspora has been really helpful and vital in keeping the protests in the public domain, in the world's attention. Um, you know, there there was recently um, a hacking group hacked into um, a conversation that the supreme leader was having um, and he said he thought that about that, that the Iranian government their intelligence thinks that about 60% of all uh, social media posts about the protests are actually coming from the diaspora, coming from outside. However, there's only so much the diaspora can do. It's Iranians inside the country who have the power to overthrow the regime. There's the Iranians inside the country who are putting their lives on the line. Ramita, just finally, what do you think 2023 will bring for Iran? Do you think the regime will have to go at some point? What does the future look like? Well, I'm not as hopeful as the exiles who have signed this this letter. I I want to think that the regime will crumble in 2023. I'm not so sure. However, we do know that the regime is flailing. We do know that it's weak, that within government now, there are several very renowned conservative figures who are speaking of reform and dialogue, which has come as a real shock. So they are fighting for their survival. And it's come as a real shock because that's not the official government line. You know, still the official government line is that 
there will be no reform, no dialogue, and these protesters will be crushed. And also that they're blaming these protests on foreign powers, as they always do. But for the first time ever, we've seen uh, reformist politicians and even conservative politicians talk about the reasons for these protests. They say uh, that it's the economy. Even a right-wing paper founded by the Supreme Leader himself uh, has stated that there are these protests are happening and it's because of the economy. So this all shows us that there are deep divisions within the Iranian regime. So that shows us that it's weakened. Whether it will crumble this year is another matter. Ramisa Navai, thank you very much for joining us today. It is 14.16 in Tallinn, 12.16 here in London, 7.16 a.m. in Washington, D.C. You are with The Briefing. There have been calls for the European Union to come up with a united response to concerns over rising numbers of COVID-19 infections in China. Brussels will tomorrow discuss possible measures on travellers from China after the country's travel restrictions for its citizens. Joining me for more is Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallio. Ivan, welcome to the programme and Happy New Year. First of all, could you tell us how much concern is there where you are about what is happening in China? and what Chinese visitors may bring with them. Hey, Marcus. Well, in Italy, um, actually, there is some concern because Italy was the first uh, EU country to um, put in some controls. Uh, So travelers coming uh, from China uh, on flights um, are asked uh, to be tested. Um, So far, only uh, variants that have been already uh, found in Europe uh, have been recorded, so the Omicron variant. Um, but there is now uh, some concern about uh, looking ahead, and, and other European countries are now starting to, to react. So um, as of today and, and in a few days, France and Spain will be, will be testing, uh, will be asking for a negative test from those people who are flying from China. Um, so there, there is a bit of concern. Again, Italy was hit uh, quite hard by the, by the COVID virus, of course. What are the main arguments for testing passengers coming from China? Then is it about getting a better understanding of what is actually happening inside China in terms of the number of infections? Yeah, because I think because they're they're concerned about you know what other variants could could be coming. I mean, so far it hasn't been a problem, but actually just just uh, today the EU has, has mentioned about offering their European vaccines or Western vaccines to the Chinese because so far the Chinese are using their own, which are recognised, but the efficacy of those don't seem to be as good in terms of they might need three doses instead of instead of two. So there is some concern about, and of course, the lower vaccination uh, rates in China, that perhaps another variant, perhaps more potent, could come out, and then that could be a risk. And then, of course, if you arrive in one European country because of Schengen, you can go to other ones. So there is that concern about we need, uh, you know, the Europeans saying we need a coordinated effort. And so, as you mentioned, this meeting, meeting tomorrow, because also in Italy, uh, with Milan and Rome airports, you have screening. Now, in Bologna, they're talking about it, too, because there can be indirect flights. So someone's coming from China, but they stop in Dubai and then arrive in Bologna. So now they just set up a, a site there as well. So, you know, there is, uh, there is concern. Has any information been revealed so, mar- so far about how many of those passengers coming from China have actually been COVID positive? Well, you know, in local media in, in Milan has discussed, uh, as mentioned, about figures for Malpensa Airport, are around 50% uh, of some flights 
with people, uh, you know, showing uh, variants like the Omicron. So obviously, it's clear that these people um, are, are, are bringing a virus, you know. And of course, the Omicron is something that has been, you know, well uh, passed through uh, Italy because uh, we've seen that for, for now many, many months. And, and in fact, Italy is uh, already at the stage where uh, they're asking, you know, older people to actually start thinking about the fifth dose uh, of the vaccine because um, to, to protect the older population, of course, Italy has you know, um, potential uh, elderly population. Now, Ivan, obviously there is another aspect to this story, which is that many countries actually want those Chinese tourists considering that they tend to spend quite a lot of money. What kind of discussion has been taking place in Italy so far about whether to force those Chinese passengers to go through tests or not? Are there concerns that if Italy, for example, says that everyone has to be tested, these Chinese tourists decide to go to other countries? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting because you know Giorgia Maloney was when she was in opposition, of course, you know, heavily criticizing the the you know the the, the clamping on restrictions of movement. Because uh, remember, Italy just got rid of its mask mandate on public transport at the end of September, uh, so it was it was very very cautious about opening up. And so the Maloney, when she was in opposition, was concerned about you know making sure that uh, people can get back to work and the economy functioning fully. Now she's kind of talking almost like a Conti Draghi kind of uh, government. Um, but she says that uh, she would want control, but, but without restrictions. So she's trying to kind of finesse it because, of course, uh, luxury shopping is a big, <laughs> big uh, part of Italy's economy, and the Chinese, you know, spend billions uh, uh, in Italy because, of course, the prices are cheaper when they, when they come to Italy compared to in China, and not all the e-commerce, you know, they can get in in China. And so it's a big, big business for them. And in you know, 2019, it was just incredible numbers. I mean, luxury departments are in Shanghai, Italy have 30 percent of the revenue coming from this tourism. So, you know, it's it's a big question. So she wants Meloni wants to be to be cautious about making sure that some variant doesn't come out of nowhere. But then she also wants to make sure the economy uh, is moving along because you know we have other concerns about inflation. So it's going to be something that she's going to have to keep a, a close eye on. Monocles, Ivan Cavallio in Milan, thank you very much for joining us today. You are with The Briefing. Monocles December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil, and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop, and our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. Now, Monocle's annual soft power survey has hit the newsstands. In it, we consider some of the established and bizarre ways that countries project themselves abroad. Perhaps among the most peculiar soft power strategies is the use of animals as diplomats. In China, the giant panda may be a cute and cuddly creature, but it's also a formidable diplomat. Since 1949, China has been lending pandas to zoos 
around the world as emblems of China's favor. But how does animal diplomacy really work? Monaco's Andrew Miller spoke to Dr. Paul Jepson, a conservation expert at Oxford University. Andrew began by asking Paul why animals are so effective as diplomatic gifts. It goes back as long as history. So I used to work in Indonesia a lot. And there, you know, the different sultanates were giving animals way, way back. And I think there's a couple of reasons why they're so good. One is that, of course, if you give a living animal, the receiver of that gift has to keep it alive. <laughs> and if you keep an animal alive, you need a place to put it. And then it becomes a bit of a centerpiece, not only for your family, but your courts, and then in modern times for a city zoo. So actually, you're giving a legacy of your presence. But when people see an exotic animal, we always ask, like, oh, where does it come from? And so you as the giver, your country or your king or whoever it might be, keeps in the mind of the recipient or the recipient's community and nation. And then, of course, it also is interesting because they almost put an obligation of the recipient towards the giver. Because if you go back again and the animal's dead, it doesn't show that you've been respected, if you see what I mean. And that relationship and that need to keep it alive creates a, a lasting connection between the person who gives an animal and the person who receives it, or the countries in the more modern case. But animals have generally been used to build relationships of shared interest in animals, of trust, and a sort of symbolic of a commitment for wanting that longer-term connection based on mutual benefit, usually. Well, it is the panda that people think of, certainly in modern times, when they think of animals being used in this way. And that's where we get the phrase panda diplomacy from. Is there something about the panda itself which makes it a uniquely potent asset in this respect? Is it just the fact that they are so extraordinarily cute and weird and odd and everybody is fascinated by them? Well, there is all of that, as you suggest, but I think there's some special things about the panda. One is that only occurs in China. And China was, if you like, very clever or very astute, maybe, in that it very early on, when I say early on, this was about 40 or 50 years ago, it moved to assure that it had ownership of all pandas in the world. We could argue, for instance, something like the tiger or the Komodo dragon is equally extraordinary, maybe not quite as cute, but equally extraordinary. But those, if you like, they spread out of those countries quite quickly and they were bred and owned by other countries. But that combination of cuteness and its emblematic and symbolic value of the panda and the fact that you can only get them from China as giving it that potency. Whereas nowadays, because in some ways, zoos and animals are so international, anybody could give anybody a tiger if they felt the need to do so. Just going back to the cuteness of the panda, is that especially important to China in the modern context in that there's something unmenacing, reassuring about the gift of a panda? I mean, I, I come from a country, Australia, which has an enormous arsenal of soft power assets in this respect. But frankly, most of our native fauna will take your face off if you look at it the wrong way, whereas the panda is obviously not going to do that. Now, this is a really good point. So in the research we did, we sort of asked that question, actually, and we did find out that there was a con conscious recognition, actually, of China thinking about what would be its national animal in a new era. And of course, you always associate the red dragon with China, which is quite a sort of challenging and ferocious animal. So the panda was seen as, at the time when China was coming out of its periods of isolation, as a symbol, as an animal, as an emblem, which sort of conveyed a friendly, non-aggressive persona, if you like. 
What are some concrete examples of China leveraging the panda for diplomatic advantage? The whole idea of panda diplomacy, it started back at the end of the Cold War and we had America and Russia at loggerheads on it. And then China coming out of its isolation and wanting to build itself as a presence on the world stage, but not wanting to align itself with either of the two big superpowers at that time. As they're coming out, they had state visits with Russia and then the US and also the UK. And as part of those state visits, they gifted pandas to them. You know, that's the origin of the notion of panda diplomacy, where this was the gift. And it was a hugely influential gift at the time. I mean, you can imagine that there hadn't been a live panda in the US since the 1930s. And when there was one, it was real high society stuff. So for the US to be given a panda, same in London, it was a sensation. People are seeing these pandas and thinking, we're feeling wonderful about having this panda. So that sort of filters over to feeling good about China. What do we know about how these decisions get made? Uh, uh, Is the allocation of pandas part of the negotiation at trade agreements, as in agree to this pipeline and we'll throw in a couple of pandas as well? Or is it normally the thing they send afterwards as an afterthought, much as one might send, I don't know, a bunch of flowers or a gift hamper to the other party to a recently concluded deal? So what happens at the moment in the modern era of panda diplomacy, and just to stress to your listeners that it's not gift giving anymore, it's a sort of lease model in it, and it's done within the context of international conservation and endangered species conservation. That's how it's allowed, if you like, internationally. So all pandas are part of captive breeding programs. And those captive breeding programs, they happen in zoos. So what seems to happen is that a number of zoos around the world would like to have a panda exhibit. And that, in some ways, puts the zoos in the sort of Premier League of world zoos. But if you'd like to ask for a panda, you first of all have to build relationships in these international networks of panda keeping, of which, of course, the Chinese State Forestry Department, they manage the Wulong Breeding Centre. They're very influential in it. But the panda is a national treasure. So it's classified as a state national treasure in China. That means they can only be allowed to go out of China with the approval of the Politburo. Now, of course, the highest level of decision making in China, they have a pretty busy agenda. So what seems to happen is that when there is a major trade deal going on between one country and China, the zoo in the Western country or also ASEAN countries as well, or or Australia, That gives them an opportunity for the zoo and the state forestry department to recommend to the Politburo, as part of their bigger agenda of talking about this trade deal, to recommend that this zoo gets a panda. It's quite regulated. It goes to quite a high level, but you almost need that window of opportunity associated with a trade deal to do it. And then, of course, then as this happens, the sort of other side of it, it's a nice seal of approval as a symbol of that trade deal because the panda comes over or it's announced that it's coming over. The politicians usually get involved in that. And it sort of symbolizes a long-term friendly relationship. We are, at least in the Chinese mind, that, that the recipient country is going to host a living national treasure of China. <laughs> when you put it like that, that's quite significant. 
That was Dr. Paul Jepson speaking to Monaco's Andrew Muller. You can listen to the conversation in full by tuning into the latest edition of The Foreign Desk. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7am in New York City. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.